this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, not busy with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill-will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding, by not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Right, okay. So, uh, Nice to see you all, and nice to be with you again. We just, as you know, we just come out of our rains retreat, and uh, three months of quiet, and now back to doing a bit of dhamma discussion again. It's always a wonderful thing to be. One of the great things about being a monastic yeah, is that you can always give dhamma talks. It means you get to listen to a lot of dhamma, <laughs> and also you get to listen to dhamma talks, right? And this is kind of the 
One of the most great things about being able to teach is actually the ability to reflect on the teachings as you are teaching and maybe a bit beforehand and maybe a bit afterwards. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. And this is only possible because people are obviously interested in these beautiful teachings. So it all comes together very nicely. But one of the things that kind of happens during the rains retreat is that there's more time for practice. Uh, you gain a bit more clarity, you gain a bit more uh, maybe insight into the nature of the mind, how the mind works. Uh, it's very often it's the same old insight uh, because insight is really into a certain number of things and, or a certain way of looking at the world or a certain way of uh, regarding the mind if you like. So it's the same kind of insights that you get but they get deeper and deeper as you keep on practicing. Uh, and one of the um, kind of interesting things that you can see when your mind becomes peaceful, uh, which, I, which you can notice quite clearly, you don't need very profound meditation to see this, uh, but what you see is you start to understand where the thoughts actually come from. Uh. Yes, the thinking doesn't come out of nowhere. The thinking has a certain source. Uh. The thinking has a certain foundation upon which it is based. Uh. And once you start to understand the foundation for how the thinking of the mind works, you start to know how to deal with the mind, how to actually change things so that the thinking becomes aligned with the Dhamma, ideally maybe having no thinking at all. At the very least, being aligned with the Dhamma is really important. So we start to see the foundation. This becomes very useful for meditation as well. This is why I'm talking about this now. And what you start to see uh, when you look at the mind, you start to see that the, the quality of your thoughts, uh, yeah, it's not, it doesn't matter so much what you think. Yeah. What really matters, what actually is important, is the quality of those thoughts. Uh, what are the ethical leaning, if you like? Yeah. Are they positive? Are they wholesome thoughts? Uh, I kind of go in the direction the Buddha is talking about. Uh, or are they unwholesome thoughts going in the opposite direction? Uh, these are the two main categories of thoughts yeah, on the Buddhist path. And we need to distinguish between these two things. So when you look at these categories of thoughts, and you look at, for example, take the positive thought, why are you having a positive thought? Why are you having a kind thought? Yeah, It's wonderful to have a kind thought, but where does it come from? And if you look very carefully, you will see that the kind thought, it arises out of a perception that you have immediately before that thought. And that perception that you have before that thought is a perception about maybe a person that is positive, seeing the good qualities in that person, seeing them in a happy way, in a good way. You're looking at the person in a certain way, in a positive way, and then the thinking process comes from that. Or, of course, the opposite can happen. It can happen that you have a negative thought, yeah? Maybe a thought, maybe you're upset with somebody or whatever. And because of that negative perception of somebody, the thinking then develops in a negative way based on that negative perception. So prior to our thinking process, there's always a perception that underlies the very thinking process. So what this means, and this is kind of the positive thing about this, it means that if we are able to direct our perceptions prior to meditation, yeah, prior to sitting down, it means that our mind will be in a good state. And because our mind is in a good state, first of all, there will be positive thoughts and they are aligned to some extent with the path. Or ideally, there may not be any thoughts at all because uh, 
positive mind is easy to calm down, easy to make still there. And unless you have that positive foundation in your meditation, it is almost impossible to do meditation with a negative mind. I would say, don't even try. Yeah? Do something else in the meantime. Try to develop that positive perception. And when that is developed, it becomes the foundation for meditation itself. And then you can start to see how some, you know, one of these ways that Ajahn Brahm teaches meditation, what he's very famous for, is just the do-nothing meditation. Yeah? You just chillax, you don't do anything at all, you sit back and you just wait, and kind of gradually the meditation happens. And that may sound like a miracle, but it isn't. And the reason why it is not a miracle is because that sort of meditation, once the mindfulness is established, once the positive mind is actually there, then all you really have to do is to lean back, sit back, and just observe. Be with the content of your mind. Be with the content of your experience. And as you stay with it, and stay with it, and stay with it, it calms down gradually. Now, when I was a young monk, I always remembered I got really frustrated with Ajahn Brahm because that was his teaching. Yeah, sit longer, sit longer. Yeah, you haven't sat long enough yet. Allow things to calm down. It took me a long time to really understand how this works. It works because your mindfulness has already been established. You have already put yourself in the right spot. Then when you sit down and you just observe, that very act of observing, the very act of being mindful, makes the mind calm down over time. You just allow the content of the mind to flow by itself and you are just aware. And it becomes a very beautiful, easy kind of meditation. Not doing anything at all, but allowing the whole world to calm down all by itself. And that is really the idea of meditation. But it starts off with creating a positive mind at the very beginning. Then mindfulness has an opportunity, then the mind will develop, hopefully, in the right way. So, Let's do a little bit of meditation together, and I will talk a little bit more afterwards about a variety of things, but let's see if we can find a little bit of peace, first of all. <clears throat> All right, so as always when you sit down to do your meditation, always to start off by just relaxing and being at ease and having a comfortable posture, allowing your mind to settle a little bit to get out of the most distracted kind of thinking. And so just find that beautiful ease and comfort, just enjoying sitting there and not having anything to do in the whole world.
and uh, just gradually allow yourself to settle down, uh, allow the world to kind of recede from your perception and recede from your mind. Uh, and it's kind of nice just to settle down, to sort of come inside of yourself uh, and not really allow the world to disturb you so much uh, anymore. Uh, and as you do that, you become aware of the state of your mind. Uh, and whatever the state of mind you have, uh, it is always good to brighten it up a little bit more, using the idea of perception uh, to enhance the positive quality of the mind. Uh, and to do that, it is often enough just to uh, remember something positive, remember something nice, uh, remember something you have done, uh, remember something someone has done to you, uh, something which made, made you feel joyful, peaceful, calm, uh, maybe full of compassion or full of love, uh, whatever it was, uh, a positive feeling within her. Uh, and then by remembering that incident, remembering that time, uh, that is often enough to brighten up the mind a little bit uh, and make the mind ready for meditation practice. Uh. Or you can uh, simply remind yourself uh, that you are living a good life, uh, that you are trying to do the right thing, that your intention is in the right place. Uh, and what a wonderful thing it is to have the right kind of intention in this world. Uh, even if you don't succeed, uh, that very intention is worthy of an enormous amount of respect. Uh, so have a sense of gratitude towards yourself uh, for making the most out of your life. Uh.
And then as you gradually settle down with a hopefully a slightly positive attitude of mind, uh, then all you really have to do from here on is just to observe, uh, just to be with your experience, uh, whether that experience is just the internal state of the mind, uh, or even if external things disturb you a little bit. Uh, just to be with the experience. Uh, don't react. Uh, be like Teflon. Uh, everything just slips off straight away. Uh, and you're just present to see things arising and passing away uh, without allowing it to stick in your mind at all. Uh, and what you will observe as you do this, uh, uh, ideally, is that things will calm down gradually, gradually, gradually. Uh, and so allow this process to happen uh, and just observe. Uh,
And uh, uh, to succeed in this idea of observing your mind, especially the content of your mind, uh, it is important not to identify too much with the thoughts. Uh, the less you see the thoughts as something just passing through, uh, something that doesn't really belong to you, uh, almost like entertainment on a screen that belongs to the world, uh, the more you disidentify with the thinking mind, uh, the more ability you will have just observing, uh, allowing it to arise and allowing it to pass uh, without getting bogged down into these thoughts. Uh. So try this idea of standing back. Uh, you are the observer, uh, you are not the content of the experience. Uh.
Okay, everyone, so coming close to the end, uh, before we come to the very end, just take a minute or two just to reflect on the meditation today. Uh, and if it has been nice and peaceful, if there has been an improvement in your mind state, uh, ask yourself why that is the case. Uh, what are the perceptions, what are the intentions that lead you in the right direction here? Uh, Thank you, John. That was a very nice meditation. I really like the image of things passing off like Teflon and having a Teflon coating. It's excellent. Thank you. Good. So I, uh, I could, I, I think I will just talk a little bit first of all, and then we can open up for Q and A towards the end. Is that okay, Chris? Uh, that's absolutely fine, yeah. John. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Great. So uh, we will do that. I'll just talk a little bit about um, uh, some of the issues that I've been talking with someone else about recently. One of the um, uh, things I was discussing with someone was how to recognize someone who is a, uh, if you like, someone who is advanced on the, on the spiritual path. Uh, how do you know if someone is, uh, has really good meditation? Uh, how do you know who to choose as a teacher because they have the qualities that are required for a teacher? How do we distinguish in the world between those people who are truly profound from those people who are more kind of superficial but maybe nice nevertheless? And I think this is a very important point because if we, if we want to go all the way to the end of the path, it actually matters enormously that we distinguish true profundity from, if you like, more superficial qualities that are still nice, but they are more superficial nevertheless. So how do we do that? And as we start to understand the idea of real profundity, then we will also tend to lean in the same direction. And eventually maybe we have a chance to also experience some of those qualities of, of real profundity. And there's one thing in particular I want to talk about. But before I, I do that, I want to say a little bit about uh, uh, what the suttas have to say about this. Yeah, this is the word of the Buddha. Uh, I think it is, uh, it is obligatory to always bring in the word of the Buddha <laughs> during these talks. That's kind of my idea anyway. Um, and what the Buddha says is very interesting. He says that when you uh, come across a potential teacher or someone who is like a spiritual um, you know, practitioner or whatever sort, uh, uh, you should evaluate that person. You should look at them very carefully to find out whether they are worthy of your confidence and worthy of your faith, worthy of your support even, or whatever it might be. And the Buddha makes this very explicit. This is found in one of the suttas. If you, I don't know if you're into the suttas, but it's found in the, one of the suttas called the Chanki Sutta in the middle-length sayings of the Buddha number 95. 
And uh, the Buddha says we should also do the same thing towards him. Yeah, we should also investigate the Buddha. It's kind of, I think, is unique in the world of religion, where the, te the main teacher says, investigate me. Yeah? And if you're happy, great. If you're not happy, well, maybe <laughs> you should do something else. And this is found in the Majjhimanikan middle-length sayings number four, uh, uh, 47. Uh, which is called, uh, what's it called again? It's called the uh, Vimangsaka Sutta, the Investigator Sutta. So you investigate the teacher, you investigate the Buddha. And what should we investigate? Well, one of the main things that we should investigate are the qualities. And when we talk about uh, qualities, uh, what we talk about is usually the defilements of the mind, yeah, the greed, the desire of the mind, uh, the ill will of the mind, and the delusion of the mind. So we investigate uh, whether this person has those qualities or whether they are free from those qualities. Yeah? And that is already a very good start, yeah? because it's, sometimes it is very obvious that someone has a lot of ill will or they may be greedy or they may be very confused and lacking in clarity and all of these kind of things. And we can make some fairly preliminary, at least, the decisions on that basis. But um, it is also a little bit problematic. Yeah? And the reason why it is problematic is that uh, uh, sometimes the way people appear on the surface uh, and the way uh, is, is one thing and the way they actually are might be something else. Uh, or it may be that the defilements are not very strong. They are still there. So they may appear like a very together person. Maybe they are together to some extent. Uh, but underneath that, there are some problems, maybe delusions or misunderstandings or whatever. So they are quite pure, but not really, don't really have the profundity that we are seeking for. And also, we often come from certain biases ourselves. We come from a certain bias in the way we look at people. And for that reason, it can be very difficult sometimes to be clear about where people are, what are the qualities of other people. So we need something more sometimes. It is often not enough just to look for these defilements or for the absence of these defilements. Uh, we need a little bit more. Huh? And um, I will start, uh, one of the things I want to start with uh, is uh, the idea of, and this is already quite a profound idea to reflect on in relation to spiritual teachers, uh, and that is uh, uh, what, do that, what does that spiritual teacher take as their refuge, as their teacher? Huh? One of the dangerous things in the world, and this, has, this already has to do with some of the very profound aspects of the path, uh, with the idea of right view, with the idea of not being deluded. Yeah, delusion is a very profound thing. Uh, and if a teacher is too concerned about being the leader, uh, about themselves being important on the path, uh, then there is usually a problem. Uh, yeah, if it is too much about the teacher, uh, then there is a problem. Uh, the ideal teacher, and this is one of the things I loved about Ajahn Brahm when I came to Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm would always say, the Buddha is my teacher. He would say, Ajahn Chah is my teacher. Yeah, these are the two main people, when I listen to Ajahn Brahm, that he talks about. Ajahn Chah, his living teacher, and then the Buddha, kind of the departed teacher from a long time ago. And so you take away the focus on the person uh, and you place the focus instead on the teachings uh, and teachers who are not really available anymore. It comes from this deep lineage going back into the past. Uh, that is where these teachings come from. Uh, yeah? And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, and then they are expressed through contemporary teachers uh, like Ajahn Brahm and others as well. Uh, but without focus on the person in the same way. Uh. 
And that is very beautiful because it means that there is much less chance of having uh, you know, abuse of a position of power and all of these kind of things. Uh, the idea of an ancient lineage uh, expressed through people today uh, is kind of the, to my mind, uh, the best of both worlds. Uh, because we have that long lineage going back uh, with hopefully awakening at the very root of it uh, and also the modern example that lives it out uh, but without the focus on that person. Uh. And so this is one of the things to always uh, look out for on the path. Uh. Now, one of the kind of remarkable things that you may read if you read the suttas, and one of the things that the Buddha said, which to my mind was always kind of extraordinary when I saw that, I wonder, what is this all about? And this is where the Buddha, yeah, this is the Buddha, right? This is the beginning of this whole teaching called Buddhism. The Buddha says, it is suffering to live without something that I can respect. Or, or you, in general, it is suffering not to have something you can respect in this world, something you can esteem, even something you can worship, if you like. And then the Buddha says, but I don't have anyone in this world. There's no one in this world who is more enlightened than I am. And if there is no one who is more enlightened than I am, then who am I going to esteem? Who am I going to respect? Yeah. And the Buddha says, because not having something to esteem, it's like suffering. And then he says, well, what I will esteem and what I will respect, because there's no one in the world who knows more than I, I will respect that very Dhamma, that very goal, that very purpose, that very teaching that I have discovered. That is what I will respect in my life. And this is kind of very powerful. Yeah, this is coming from the Buddha. This is coming from someone who really has the act together, to say the least. And even for him, he says that actually, I need something more. I need something to lean on, something to hold on to in this life. Because if you haven't got that, there is a degree of suffering there. And it's certainly true for everyone else, but even true for the Buddha himself. And that is just extraordinary. It shows us something very interesting about the Dhamma and that is even when you're fully enlightened like the Buddha there's still a residue of suffering left yeah there's still you still need something uh, you know some practice something some support some Dhamma to hold on to the meditation or whatever it might be and then eventually when you pass away that's when kind of the full ending of suffering happens uh. so you can imagine how much more important it is to us uh, to have something to hold on to uh. And for this reason, when you see a teacher, you want to evaluate someone's degree of awakening, the profundity of their wisdom, uh, uh, whatever it might be, uh, look at these kind of qualities. Uh, who do they say is their teacher? Is the focus too much on them? Or do they have someone else behind them who they're actually looking up to? Uh, so this is um, the first quality. And this is already very profound. And in many ways, this is maybe the most important thing uh, that I will be saying tonight, because it gives us a very a profound way of, of thinking about what um, uh, about this idea of non-self, in a sense, this idea of not um, focusing too much on individuals. Uh, um, but there is uh, another thing here, and uh, this is uh, where I come a little bit back to this, uh, what I was discussing with this other person here. And uh, this is one of the things that we very often look for in someone who is to be our teacher or someone who is to be anything in this world, we look for the kindness in the person. Yeah? Kindness is a very important part of the Buddhist path. If you take the idea of sila, that we talk about sila being this idea of 
uh, our habits and our, uh, how we kind of interact with the world. Uh, yeah? Basically, kindness can summarize that sila in a very nice way. Yeah? And so we should always look for kindness, of course. Uh, but there is a problem there, uh, and that is that kindness is often not enough. Uh, and the reason for that is if you start to look into the world, you will see that there are many kinds of people who are kind. Some people may not be very profound, but they may still have very pure hearts. Yeah? Some people may be kind for maybe even the wrong reasons. Some people, because they have low self-esteem, may be kind. So they suppress their anger, or they suppress their ill will because they don't feel good about themselves. So kindness can be there for many different reasons, and not always for the right reason. So it's not sufficient. And one of the problems with kindness is that one of the things that we are always looking for in the world, we're looking for people that it feels good to us to be around. You want to be around someone it feels good to be around. How do you choose your friends? How do you choose your colleagues? Well, usually you choose those people who you feel at ease with. How do you choose a, a partner in life? How do you choose anyone to be in your life? Well, someone who says the right things to you. Yeah? Someone who tells you that you are okay. Someone who says kind things to you. Someone who does all of these right things. And so we have a vested interest in liking people who are kind. And sometimes we don't look behind the facade. We said this must be a very good spiritual person. They must be very profound. Why? Because they are so kind. And we can end up being trapped by this idea because of our uh, motivated thinking, motivated uh, reasoning. We are motivated by a self-bias in accepting people because they are kind. And very often people are kind for all kinds of reasons, as I just mentioned before. It may be because they want to be liked, it may be because of whatever. And it is not always just because of pure spiritual qualities. And so we have to be careful here, because one of the things about someone who is very advanced on the spiritual path, whose meditation is profound, who has a deep insight into these teachings, is that they... Uh, don't really, they, they are not, they are kind of course, uh, but the kindness is of a very pure sort. Uh, it is not a kindness that comes from attachment. Uh, it is not a kindness that comes because they want to please you. Uh, it is not a kindness that is done for some ulterior motive. Uh, it is an independent kindness. Uh, it is a kindness with integrity that comes from within because they know it is the right thing to do. Uh, and they don't really care about you, right? They, or they, they care about you, but in a larger kind of way. They don't care about you because they want to make you a friend. They don't care necessarily about your immediate feelings. If they are going to be your teacher, sometimes they may tell you about your flaws, right? And sometimes it can be painful to hear about your flaws. Or sometimes they may not be willing to reciprocate when you are trying to manipulate them, right? They will withstand that kind of manipulation. And so the kindness of a person who is true, truly spiritual is of a different sort than the kindness that we see in the world. And this is a very important insight because it means that when we look at someone's kindness, we also look at their integrity. We look at their willingness sometimes to tell us the painful realities of life. If they're willing to do that, it means that they are not coming from a sense of attachment. Yeah? They are free of what you think about them. They don't care what you think about them. If you get, get them wrong, it is, it is your problem, not their problem. 
And that is the most beautiful kind of kindness, because it is a kindness that sees the large picture, that allows you to grow, that gives you good advice when it is required. It's a deeper kind of kindness from behind the, coming from behind the facade, deeper within, deeper within you. So when you judge people in the world, you have to judge very carefully, not to judge by the usual superficial standards that we include in society, but judge from this larger, broader view of what kindness really is about. Kindness is about large-scale, broad-scale compassion, encouraging you on the Buddhist path towards awakening, helping you to see some of your flaws. We all have flaws. Yeah, we all have problems. We all have attachments that we're struggling to overcome. And because of that, that is the real kindness in the world. So try to see this in the right way. And then you will start to kind of see these ideas differently. And it allows you also to come closer to the right view of what this path really is about. And because it allows you also to develop in the right way some of the similar kind of qualities, non-attachment, non-clinging, etc. Kindness coming with integrity, not being concerned about what the world thinks about you, but being concerned about doing the right thing instead. So this is the idea of kindness, looking at kindness in the right way here. Then, uh, thinking about, you know, coming from the idea of the uh, Noble Eightfold Path, if you like, after the, uh, the Sila, we then have the meditation. And uh, so what should we expect from meditation practice and how should we think about that in terms of the people uh, who are, you know, on the path to awakening or whatever? Now, one of the kind of the critical things about meditation practice is the idea of... Uh, Mindfulness, yeah, mindfulness is what is required to be able to sit down and to be able to let go, just like we were doing just before, trying to just be with things and not being involved in all of these kind of things. And so one of the questions I got recently, which also fits in quite nicely with this topic, yeah, uh, I was asked, um, can mindfulness deteriorate if you are, like say you are enlightened, yeah, or you are a stream enter, or you are a good meditator? Can mindfulness actually deteriorate? And uh, it is an important question because, again, it has to do with how we look at people in the world. How do we know whether someone is awakened or not? And now to understand this thing, you have to remember the fact that mindfulness in Pali, sati is the word in Pali, it has two kind of angles, two kind of components to it. One is the ability to be present in the here and now. And that ability to be present here and now, that is what we're trying to develop in meditation practice. Yeah? You're just aware, you allow things to kind of go on and you let go of things gradually. And that is essential quality for awakening. It is a quality that grows and grows and grows the closer you get to awakening itself. But there is another aspect of mindfulness, and that is the aspect of memory here. Yeah, if you have very good mindfulness, you also tend to have good memory. Yeah? But memory also depends on the health of your body, yeah? the health of your brain and these kind of things. We know Alzheimer. Alzheimer is basically a brain disease, right? Or any kind of dementia for that matter. And so all of these things also depend on the quality of your body or the quality of your brain. And so it is possible yeah, to be very... Um, 
a very good meditator, you know, even very spiritually advanced or maybe even enlightened, uh, and still kind of get some of these brain diseases that actually limit the mind and for that reason may reduce your memory, for example. I don't know if you will go senile, maybe you even go senile. Maybe you get, if you get Alzheimer, it might end up like that. But uh, so memory is not a, such a good way of deciding whether someone is awakened or not. Yeah, as you can see people getting older, you can see people, even the best meditators. You see someone like Ajahn Shah, for example, who very famously almost lost his, he lost his ability to communicate with people. He was almost like a vegetable for the last years of his life. And this is from someone who many people would say was enlightened before that. It's because the body traps the mind, and this happens to all of us. So don't, so you, again, you need to navigate this in the right way to understand what are the real spiritual qualities and what are qualities that actually can deteriorate. Another aspect of meditation that is very useful to keep in mind is the uh, idea of uh, uh, samadhi, someone who is uh, enlightened or close to awakening or whatever, someone who is really worthy of respect. They will tend to have very good samadhi. Samadhi is the stillness of the mind. Yeah? And uh, I would say sometimes there's always this discussion, well, you know, how much samadhi is required on the path and all of these kind of things. Uh, but if you are going to measure your own wisdom, your own understanding, uh, and if you're going to measure the wisdom of someone else, uh, the right way of doing that is not to ask yourself, how much insight do I have? Uh, because it's very difficult to know how much insight you have. Yeah? Insight is because delusion is there and delusion will cloud your ability to see exactly what is happening in your mind. You may have an interesting experience in meditation, but it may turn out to be fairly shallow after all, further on the track. Yeah? And so it's very difficult to judge insight. And so the, what we judge instead is stillness and samadhi, because stillness and samadhi is much more easier to know. We can know whether we are thinking or not. We can know whether we are blissed out or not. We can know whether the mind is perfectly still or not. Yeah? It's easier to kind of get your kind of handle on the idea of stillness and peace than it is to get, get the handle on the idea of insight. And of course, the interesting thing here, and this is kind of why this matters so enormously, is that your ability to attain samadhi, your ability for the mind to be peaceful, depends entirely on the depth of your insight. The more insight you have, the deeper will your samadhi be. And the reason for that is very, very simple. Because if you have deep insight, it means that you know where suffering and happiness are to be found in the world. Deep insight means you understand that there are certain things in the world that are suffering. And when you understand that in a deep way, you can abandon those things. And because you can abandon them, because you're not interested in them, because you can let them go so easily, samadhi is always accessible to you. So anyone who is profound, anyone who is a deep person, is someone who accesses samadhi very easily. And you see this in the suttas. I have to quote some suttas again. It's a long time, maybe five minutes now since I quoted the sutta, maybe ten minutes. And uh, one of the things that you see in the suttas is precisely this sort of thing. Yeah? The Buddha says that the deeper your is your wisdom, the more powerful are what he calls the five spiritual faculties, the panch indriya. 
Yeah, so if you are a stream entry, your indriyas will have a certain strength. These are the faculties, the, the powers of the mind, if you like, the spiritual powers of the mind. If you are a non-returner, even more powerful. If an arahant, even more powerful. And those five faculties include samadhi, they include the stillness. They also include mindfulness, they also include energy, they also include uh, um, uh, wisdom, actually, and also faith. But samadhi is kind of the critical faculty there, which is easy to understand and easy to look at. So ask yourself how someone teaches. Do they teach the importance of samadhi? Do they look like someone who is themselves practicing samadhi? Do they have that feeling about them? How do we know that? Well, we can know by observing them a little bit about how peaceful they are, how they behave in their life, are they kind of random or you know, all of these kind of things. We can have some idea of these kind of things. And certainly by listening to them and how they present themselves, also you get some idea about whether someone has somebody or not. And then you gain another basis for having some idea what people are actually like and how profound they really are. How important are these things in their life? And also, it is a great way for yourself to know about your own practice, using that as a litmus test for whether you are having success in your meditation or not. So these are some of the ideas. The very last thing I want to say and is that and this is more coming to the idea of wisdom. And wisdom is always very profound in Buddhism, especially the wisdom of the very end of the path. So how can we know if someone is truly wise? And the Buddha says in the suttas that one of the ways to know whether someone is wise is by having discussions with them and you know, gradually finding out what they are like as a person and their ability to... You know, to I guess, respond in a way that is wise in a, in a certain sense. Uh, so all of these things are important. Uh, but uh, one of the things to me that I always measure kind of the wisdom of someone with, and this is, uh, again, a very profound thing, and I'm not sure if it will make any sense to you, uh, but one of them is always to ask myself whether the uh, person, whether they are inclined toward eternalist ideas, uh, whether they are inclined toward seeing things in the world as eternal. In other words, whether they like to see the idea of an eternal God or an eternal mind or an eternal consciousness or something like that. Because Buddhism is about not about eternalism. Buddhism is about the ending of suffering. And these are two quite different things. And wherever there is eternalism, there is not really the teaching of the Buddha. And this is one of the factors that I also personally at least use when deciding and having some idea whether someone is truly profound or not. And so those are basically the things that I wanted to mention tonight, those things specifically, but the thing that really brought this thing to a head and the reason why this came out was really about the idea of sila. Yeah, sila can be is always there and it's very easy to be attracted to kind people. But just because they're kind does not always mean that they are profound. Sometimes someone who is more profound may not be as kind yeah, as someone who is truly, pro uh, someone who is not as profound. And the reason is because they don't really care about what we think about them. And so sometimes they may, they may tell you the truth. Whereas someone who we take to be 
kind in a very general sense. They may be kind because we, they don't tell us the truth. They always tell us what we want to hear, right? And so we think, yeah, oh, this is my friend. They are really, really kind, yeah? But actually, it is motivated reasoning. It is motivated thinking. We have alter ulterior motives. It is our sense of self that we want to protect rather than really looking for profundity, really looking for what really is important in life. So be careful. Don't allow yourself, your ego, your sense of self to get in the way of profundity. All right. So uh, that is uh, what I have to say tonight. So now, if you wish to ask some questions, uh, whether about meditation, about what I have talked about, about anything really, you are very, very welcome to do so. So, uh, Chris, will you moderate this or will you...? Uh, yes, certainly, yeah. um, Ajahn, if you would like that. Uh, you're all welcome. I see a hand has just gone up there. Melanie, uh, would you like to unmute and go ahead with your question or comment? Uh, we can't hear you. Can you speak up a little? Yes. Hello. I have a question uh, about the difference in uh, two tiny terms uh, in the Sutta. Sabe Sankara Anicca, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, Sabe Dhamma Anatta. I want to know the difference between Sankara and Dhamma, if you could give concrete examples. And um, is there anywhere else in the Sutta? Because I haven't read much. I have read already. Hmm. Um, if it's interchangeable, if there's somewhere where the Buddha says, Sabe, Sankara, Anicca, Dukkha, and Sabe, Sankara, and yeah, no, okay, yeah, good, yeah. So, sure, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. This, this is uh, consistent uh, in the suttas. It's always sabbe, sabbe sankara anicca, sabbe sankara dukkha, and sabbe dhamma anatta. It's always, it's always the same. Uh, that is the way it is. And I think there is a, there is a, re there is a reason for that. And uh, uh, the, idea, the idea of sankaras are like all the phenomena in the world, yeah? whatever we can experience in the world. Uh, phenomena, that is what sankara is. Uh, and so if you observe any, any phenomenon uh, yeah, within yourself or in the world outside, uh, it is always everything is impermanent, everything is changeable, nothing is reliable in this world. Uh, and because nothing is reliable, it is dukkha, because it means you can't hold on to it. Uh, and we always hold on to things, and so it is dukkha as a consequence. Uh, now, the idea of, of Dhamma is that um, Dhamma is more than just Sankaras. So Dhamma is also some of the principles of the world, right? Things like uh, uh, the laws of the world. Yeah? So in Buddhism, the laws of Buddhism are like things like dependent origination, for example, or the laws of impermanence themselves is also a kind of law. These are things that are fixed. They're always like that. Uh, and so you might think, well, if these laws of the world, the way the world operates, if they are fixed, maybe they are a kind of self, right? Maybe I can hold on to these laws because the world operates according to certain laws. 
So it's so the idea of Dhamma then is that even the laws of the world, even the uh, kind of the ways that the world operate, uh, they too are not really self. They have nothing to do with the self. Uh, you can't, you know, there's not, not nothing there that you can hold on to in that way. Uh, so it kind of broadens out to include everything, not just the immediate phenomena, but also the way we think about the world and the way the, the world operates. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Ajahn, and uh, thank you, Melanie, and your sister. And Sky, would you like to unmute yourself and go ahead? Uh, good morning. Hi, Arjuna Gramali. Hi. It's wonderful to see you. <laughs> um, I have a great question for myself, is how to trust my perspective. Because I find it changes. Like, I often, I think because of a little uh, being jaded and suspicious American and having seen so much of life that I often don't, don't trust my own perception of things. Um, you know, especially the people, well, could be anybody, could be anybody. Strangers, not so much. Um, you know, more like the people that you know or the people that you are close to. Um, and uh, that, that is going in the Teflon direction. Uh, when it becomes a negative uh, feeling, of the, if I have a wrong perception of the situation, which I find it, it's very frequent, and it must have been that way my whole life. Um, you know, when people often say, be like a duck, I guess that's the Teflon. Let it blow off your back. Mm. I never really quite get the hang of that. So can you just uh, uh, enlighten that? And I have one quick note. Well, something I've been noticing lately as I'm aging is I've noticed that my life is shaped a lot by my traumatic childhood. But as I get older and see the people around me even older than I am, I'm um, from my seeking karuna. I, I want to help another person suffering by remembering everything good about them. But I decided to reverse it and try to remember everything good about me mm. as well. And uh, I, I, that was a really lovely discovery mm. that I, I can, I'm free to do that, you know. But now I want to find more that I've suppressed, mm. like a, seeing a picture of myself and not even recognizing who I was as a child. That's not me, that's a non-self, you mm. know. So anyway, the first question is perception is more important for me. Yeah, no. Thank you. Sorry, I went good. on. Good. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. No, so that's that's good. I I think the uh, you know the idea of not trusting your perceptions. There's actually a lot of wisdom in that, you know, because our perceptions are very uncertain and very unreliable, and they come from all kinds of delusions and all kinds of things. Uh, so not trusting them is actually very is very good. Uh, one of the um, you know, one of the interesting things about if you develop metta and compassion, as you were saying, you know, towards yourself and, and these kind of things, uh, uh, one of the interesting questions is when the, uh, the Buddha talks about this in the suttas, he basically says we should develop kind of metta towards everyone, yeah, towards the whole world. Even if you get bandits sawing you apart with a two-handled saw, you should have metta for those bandits. Uh, 
that's, a, that's a pretty tall order, right? But that, that's what he says. So he must be, it's serious. If the Buddha says so, well, we should actually be doing that. And so the question then is, well, the question is that actually it is not really about the truth of our perceptions. Yeah? Perceptions are so uncertain, we don't know what the truth is. So we have to forget about the truth in a sense. So instead of trying to find the truth, what we have to do is we have to try to find perceptions that are useful, that actually go in the right direction, that help us on the path. That is far more important than seeking for truth, because often there is no truth. Often there is just alternative ways of looking at the world. There's different qualities in the same person. Some are good, some are bad, but there is no absolute truth at the end of the day. So instead of asking for truth, we should ask, what is useful? Okay, so this person here, they have these qualities, they have those qualities, some are good, some are bad. Let me focus on the good qualities, yeah? And let me see those, and let me be, let me be really happy that they have some good qualities. What a wonderful thing that is. Yeah. It is not a given thing in the world that people should have good qualities. Yeah? It is marvelous that they are there. Let me rejoice in that. And when you rejoice in the good qualities of other people, you banish all the negative stuff. It just disappears into the background, yeah? Or if someone really is a bad person and it's very difficult to find any kind of good qualities in them, well then of course you have compassion for them because then they are in serious trouble. So either way, you find a way through the negativity and you build up the positive qualities instead. So we need, sometimes I think we need to forget about the truth. We need to more focus on what is useful on the path. And truth is very often found in a very different area. Truth is often found in the area of things like impermanence, for example. That, that is the kind of truth we want to find. Everything is impermanent. All phenomena in the world, sambhe, sankara, anicca, uh, all phenomena in the world are impermanent. All things in the world are non-self. That is the truth that we want to unlock, because that is a truth that actually can be discovered. That is a truth that actually there is no doubt. That is where our perception will be certain. But perceptions about the world, about people, about politics, right? About all of these things, it is just so utterly unreliable. So just forget about it and go for that works on the path. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. It's like you made me realize that when you hear something, the, your perception kicks in, and what ha happens, well, I can only use myself and what I observe in myself. I get a feeling, because I'm very quick, I'm one of those quick people, I'm quick to do everything, quick, quick, quick. And um, so the feeling, the, the form is there, the feeling comes quickly. If I respond to the feeling, I'm I'm doomed. I'm <laughs> yeah. doomed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's too quick. Yeah. I was trained in improvisation and humor and and wit and sarcasm. So I'm too quick. <laughs> so I have to take a minute <laughs> and listen better. Because when when I look like what you just said, look for what is useful. So instead of feeling I'm being attacked or whatever, the history and the trauma dictate, listen to what is actually useful. Not look for the truth, but try, is it like try to find something useful in it? 
If there is something good to be seen, then see the good. If there's nothing good to be seen, then have compassion. That's really kind of what it comes down to. Uh, yeah, I would and say. Then, uh, and then yeah. if those two don't work at the moment, just like, kind of like, let it go. Let it go, yeah. yeah. Let yeah. it go, let go. Mm. Okay, thank you. Thank you so Great. much. Great, yeah, excellent. Uh, yeah. Send me the bill. <laughs> Thank you, Sky, uh, for sharing your your path and your perceptions and your progress. It's always very valuable to hear from you. So thank you, Sky. And Ajahn, thank you, you're most welcome, Sky. Ajahn, would you like me to read a question from the chat? Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, I personally have no earthly idea what happens after death. Just that I'm not afraid of it because of personal experiences with it. But can you explain how Buddhism has no eternalism, but supposedly believes in rebirth? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> sure, yeah, this is one of those kind of uh, uh, very profound questions, actually. And it kind of yeah, gets to the very core of what Buddhism really is about. Uh, so uh, the, the Buddhism is really about the idea that there is rebirth, uh, but, uh, but rebirth is not a positive thing, right? Rebirth is kind of, if you have been traumatized in this life, you can expect more, more trauma in the future life. It's kind of, it's, it's funny if it wasn't for so sad, right? It's kind of a, it's actually, rebirth is a really kind of scary prospect the more you think about it, the more you understand what is really going on there. Uh. And uh, so, uh, but eternalism, when it's normally talked about in a religious context, uh, is seen as something positive, right? You have a union with God, or you have a union with the underlying consciousness of the world. Uh, it is some kind of positive thing here. And so in Buddhism, we, we have this idea of rebirth, which is an, kind of a negative idea, and we're trying to stop the rebirth, uh, but we don't say that there is an underlying eternal quality Whereas in, um, uh, sometimes you find that uh, you know, one of the philosophies that is very common in the world uh, is that actually there is this eternalist, uh, et eternal principle behind the facade of things. So when you die, you kind of merge with that eternal principle, call that God or the cosmic you know, uh, ground of consciousness or whatever. So this is really the distinction here, that uh, uh, the round of rebirth is actually quite different from the idea of eternalism. Moreover, the round of rebirth can be stopped, whereas eternalism, obviously by its very nature, is something that goes on without any, any end in sight, so to speak. So the Buddha said that the eternalist idea is a human projection onto the universe. It is a human production because we have a sense of self inside of us. That sense of self has a kind of permanence to it. And then we project that sense of permanence that we have inside of ourselves onto the world at large, the world outside of us. And that's how kind of the idea of a, of a permanent kind of union with the world kind of comes about and comes about through meditation experiences and all of these kind of things. And this is where Buddhism is very, very radical because it rejects that idea, which is kind of one of the uh, core ideas of spirituality throughout the ages around the world. Uh, anyway, I hope that makes a little bit of sense to you. If not, then uh, try again next time. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I think it's also used to control people. Yeah. The, the notion eternalism. Right, probably. yeah. I mean, it probably was 
He probably never, I don't know, because I, I haven't studied it, what that many people, it was used as a way to control people to try to keep, get them to behave. Hell or heaven, you know, hell or heaven, hell yeah. or heaven, just trying to get people to behave or could be some sort of a, a yeah. oh, I can't even think of the word right now, I didn't sleep all night long, um, but uh, some sort of a ancient sort of mystical thing, you know, because we didn't understand what death was, but that's interesting. I yeah. Think, thank you very anyway, much. Anyway, excellent, good, yeah. Great. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Martha, and thank you, Ajahn. I have another question in the chat, Ajahn, if you're okay. Please, yeah. I would like to ask Ajahn Ramali if he has specific advice about what we can do outside meditation time that can make meditation take off easier instead of forcing to sit down with active thoughts? Yeah. This, this is an extremely, extremely important question because this is really where the idea of the spiritual path, it, it is much more than just meditation practice. The spiritual path is something that we need to integrate into your whole life. Yeah? Your whole life should be about spirituality. Yeah? And the reason why it should be, your whole life should be about this is because this is the meaning of life. This is the purpose of life. This is where you develop your mind. This is where you change yourself. This is where you end up when you die. You end up in a better place than you started out when you got born into this world. Yeah? So this whole idea, the, the spiritual practice, the development of the mind, there is nothing else in the world that is truly meaningful. This is really, really meaningful. And so if you want to live a fulfilled life, this is what it is about. And uh, the development of the mind happens at any time. Yeah? It is not just in your meditation practice. It happens when you meet people in ordinary life, when you go to work, when you're at home, when you do your hobbies, uh, when you, even when you're kind of you know, watching entertainment or whatever. Yeah? In all of these cases, uh, the development of the mind should always be at the back of your mind somehow. This is what life is about. Uh, and so we, we bring it into our life, and it's, very, it's quite simple in many ways, right? with the simple ideas that we talked about today, ideas such as kindness, ideas such as compassion, ideas like generosity. You bring that into every aspect of your life. Yeah? Right now, together here, all of us together here, right in this moment, uh, we develop that kind of kindness to each other yeah? in everything you do. And then... That is where kind of the idea of the spiritual path really starts to take hold. Now coming back to what I was saying before, I was saying the underlying thing that kind of lies behind the thinking mind are our perceptions of the world. Yeah? We perceive things in a certain way and once you have a perception, the mind tends to think in accordance with that perception. So if you have a defiled perception, the thinking carries on according to those defilements. If you have a pure perception, then you can think very pure thoughts and very kind thoughts and all of these kind of things. So one of the things that we need to do in our life is to develop those perceptions. Yeah? And as you develop your perceptions, as you change your outlook, as you start to look at the world in a different way, then those perceptions start to inform your thinking mind. They start to lie behind what you think. So if we can change our perceptions in daily life yeah, by 
looking at things in a new way, looking at people in a new, new way, having more compassion, having more care, having more kindness, having more understanding, overcoming our ill will, remembering impermanence, remembering that everyone in this world is suffering. Remember when people do something bad, it's probably because they suffer, right? It's probably because they're having a bad day. It's probably because they, were, they have some bad conditioning, maybe not in this life, but if not in this life, in a past life. Guaranteed, there's a reason why they're doing stupid things. And so by developing these very fundamental ideas, these fundamental outlooks, and this is something you can do at any time during the day, yeah? These are always open because this is about using your thinking mind, using your right view to guide your perceptions, guide the way you look at things, uh, then you can always be on the spiritual path. Uh, there's not, except maybe when you sleep, yeah, or, or whatever, but you can, or, otherwise you can always be on the spiritual path. If you can dream spirituality, even better, but if you can't do that, then that's okay, we will forgive you for that one. But at least the remaining hours of the day, right, you can actually be, uh, be practicing these things. So it, it should really, it, we should understand that this is, uh, this is what life is about. And once you get that this is what life is about, uh, it becomes an all-consuming thing, the idea of developing your mind, always looking for the way forward, how to develop this path. Uh. Thank you so much, Brahma. Thank you for coming. Thank you. So glad to see you back. Good. <laughs> Yes, and thank you, Evie, and thank you, Ajahn. Is there anybody else who'd like to unmute and grab the last last slot? We're just about up to that time. Um, can I ask a quick question? Gloria, that would be wonderful. Yes, please. Um, yes, I was wondering, I noticed that you don't do body whipping before <laughs> like meditation. Is there a reason for it? Because I I thought that like body whipping is, is a common thing to calm down your mind, but most of the time, it just like goes straight into the meditation. Is there a reason for that? Thank you. Uh, it's just that there's just different ways of doing it. There isn't any, you know, any kind of right way. Or the, or there is a right way, but the right way is the way that makes you peaceful. The right way is the way that works. The right way is the way that gives you the results. Yeah. So if you find that your mind becomes peaceful, that you become more mindful, uh, that it actually works, then you are doing the right thing. Yeah. So in a sense, you know, when I give whatever instructions I give, it's because that's kind of how, it, how things usually work for me, but you are very welcome to do your, follow your own kind of technique, yeah? If you find that this works for you or that works for you, do whatever works for you. But if you look at the way the Buddha teaches in the suttas, he doesn't, you know, he, uh, it's a bit sort of, um, it's not kind of that systematic. He doesn't actually say that you should do body sweeping first. So this is more like a kind of a way, a, a, a skillful means of making the meditation work. It is not actually a, a kind of laid down by the Buddha as necessary, anything like that. The Buddha really talks about the mindfulness of breathing, and he talks about establishing good qualities first. These are kind of the main things that he does. But please do whatever works for you. That is the most important thing. So if you have a way that is good for you, please do that. Uh, thank you. And Hasindu, would you like to unmute and ask your question? Thank you, Ajahn, and thank you, Gloria. Ajahn, my question is, what are the qualities we need to develop to associate with teacher as a student? 
What other qualities we need to develop to? Uh, develop to associate with good teachers. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the, uh, it's interesting because in a, in a sense the, uh, uh, the suttas, they, they start off with the association with good teachers. That's kind of almost like the beginning point. Uh, because once you come across a good teacher, that is when you kind of start to gain right view. Yeah? So it kind of begins with that and then kind of the path develops. Uh, so it's interesting that you should say, how do we, what do we need to do to even do that? Yeah? Because this is kind of, uh, <laughs> how do we even get started in other words? What comes before we start? Yeah, maybe, maybe that's the question here. Uh, and there's always something else, so you can always take it back further. So I would say the most important thing to be able to uh, meet good teachers is, first of all, you need to have an interest in spirituality. You have to, have to understand that this is actually very meaningful, yeah, the spiritual life. Uh, and that's why very often this starts with dukkha. Yeah? When we start to experience dukkha, whether it is the experience of suffering or whether it's an insight into suffering, either, either of those, uh, that is when we start to seek the spiritual path because we want to find a solution. Uh, but the other thing that we should be careful with, and this is one of the reasons I gave the talk today, is that we should be careful not to be deluded about spiritual qualities. Uh, it's very easy to get these things wrong because they are very profound. Uh, and so we should be always have, try to have an open mind, uh, always kind of correct our course, correct the way we look at things, uh, trying to see behind the facade uh, and see deeper into things. Uh, and then we start to understand what really deep spiritual qualities, what they really are about. And they're not really about ordinary kindness. They're not about the ordinary give and take of life. They're not about attachment. They're not about being kind because you will be kind back to me. They're not about these ordinary things in the world. It's a much broader and much larger thing. And, then, so, and that is what I would call non-delusion. Honesty, seeking the truth, always seeking the truth. And if you are a seeker of truth, eventually you will find it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ajahn. Why sound for me? Sorry, Mr. And thank you too, Mr. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. Uh, it's been a most interesting evening. Uh, the image of Teflon is going to be stuck in my mind. <laughs> We can just pay respect to the to the Buddha. Shall we do that together? Yeah. Yeah. So, the yeah. Buddha yeah. so we'll do that. I'll do the do the simple simple chanting for the Buddha. Arahang Sambudo Bhagava Bodang Bhagavantang Abhivademe Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Sapate Panno Bhagavato Savaka Sango Sanghang Namami. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye, everyone. Thank you so much. Sir. <laughs>